want to take you back into the study of what we've come to call this, the parable of the prodigal son. And if you have been here for the series so far, you may remember that it's, it's so much more than just about the prodigal son, right? We've already talked how it's, a, it's about the younger son, the older son. It's about the father, and, and really it's about God's redemptive joy in, in drawing us to him. And then we have this great angle of, of looking at redemption through these different lenses, kind of like looking at a mountain only from different angles. And that is this, this great, brilliant parable that Jesus has constructed because the Pharisees and the scribes, these, these guys were, who were supposedly the defenders of the faith, the defenders of, of all things that are God's desires, right? They had no clue what God was after. In fact, they had kind of constructed their own ideas of what God was after, and, and they thought that God actually just wanted to obliterate people who weren't following after him. And so this is the reason that Jesus teaches this lesson. So let's just kind of dive right back into it. I have it up on the screen if you don't have your Bible with you. <clears throat> Verse 11 of Luke chapter 15 begins reading in, in this way. I have the English standard up on the screen, by the way, if your version reads just a, a little different. And he said, well, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And as we learned last time we were together, I mean, just this whole thing that's happening here is just astounding to Jesus's original audience. The fact that this young man would come and ask for such a thing, I mean, it was so dishonorable, so disrespectful. In fact, he should have been disowned by his family, let alone the fact that his father gives into that, and the father actually brings shame upon himself, significant shame upon himself in that culture by giving into the demands of this younger son. Verse 13, so not many days later, so he receives this inheritance that's divided up. He liquidates it as fast as possible, which means he's kind of selling everything at fire sale prices, and he's violating, by the way, the Mosaic law, and he's sinning in the midst of all these things that he's doing, the fact that he requested it, the fact that he's liquidating property the way that he's doing. He's violating everything that the Jews know and understand, and so he would have immediately been villainized by Jesus' audience. So not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had from liquidating his property and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property or the money from that property in reckless living. Verse 14, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, verse 17 says, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, he's rehearsing what he's going to say in his, his repentance speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Verse 20, and he arose and came to his father. 
but while he was still a long way off. His father saw him and felt compassion, ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, Bring quickly the best robe, which was probably, by the way, the father's robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead. And we talked about several weeks back how in the Jewish culture, and we'll talk about it again when we get here, in the Jewish culture, he would have literally been considered dead. They would have actually said a ceremonial funeral service after or the son was sent away because of the things that he had done. He was dead to the family. So here we clearly see that everybody considered him dead. This, for this, my son was dead, and he's alive. He was lost and is found. Well, they began to celebrate. Verse 25, now his older, brother, now his older son was in the field. And when he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. He called to one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, the older son, but he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Can I get my clicker to click? There we go. But when his son, but when this son of yours, who, is deva- who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and to be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he was found. Um, As I've mentioned numerous times, there's just so much packed into the economy of Jesus' words here. And oftentimes with a culture that's thousands of years removed from ours and, you know, thousands of miles away in a different land, um, the cultural details and the details of what we read are not always clearly obvious at first, and so that's why it's really worthy of us taking time to study it, because there's so many things that we're learning about our salvation. There's so many things that we're learning about forgiveness. There's so many things that we're learning about the extravagant grace and extravagant measures that God has went in order to redeem us. It's all packed inside of this parable that just a casual reading would would never really show and so we're taking time. So the, the last time that we looked with, at the passage, which was a couple weeks ago, we, we left off in verse 13. Now, if you're just kind of coming in today and you're halfway through the, the series and, and you kind of missed these, these previous ones, I just need to shamelessly tell you, go back and listen to the CDs that are available out on the communication table. Um, you can find the, the audio or the video downloaded on our website There's so much here that you've missed if you're just coming in today, but we just don't have time to go back and to remind everything that we've talked about already. 
So just go back and look at those lessons. We left off last time pointing out that the youngest son, after he had openly disgraced and dishonored his father, right? He had requested that his father divide his property among them. And really, in essence, and especially in that culture, what the older son or the younger son was saying was, Dad, I really want your money. I don't care about you. You're just dead to me. Give me what I know that I have coming. And we talked about how that's a violation of Mosaic law. We talked about how it's against the fifth commandment. We talked about how much he sinned in that. And all of those details, Jesus' original audience would have understood. We talked about when he liquidated all of the property that was given to him, how, how that was just so shameful and it violated Mosaic law even further. And so it further villainized the younger son. We talked about how the, the father, the fact that he even gave in to the desire of this younger son was just a, it, it was completely non-kosher. It completely violated tradition. And actually, what ended up happening is the father, in the eyes of the community, brought shame upon himself. And so we need to kind of pick up right there in verse 13 some more of the details here this morning. By the way, Prodigals still do the same thing that we read about here. Um, they still do the same thing today. Um, they still have rebellious hearts. They, they still, they still want to live in any way that they want to live without anybody to say anything about the way that they're living. And oftentimes, that's why prodigals will go and they'll live far away from their families, is because they don't have then the accountability and the safety net of that family teaching them what is right and holding them accountable, kind of towing the line, as it were. And so, if, if you have a, a prodigal son or daughter, that may help explain. And at the end of the day, you know really what it is? It's just the sin nature. That, that's, that's the nature of sin and how it makes itself manifest. The, the attitude of a prodigal is all about themselves. They, they really just kind of want their own way, and they're looking for a, really a way out of the family. In fact, that's the first thing. You have a handout. I hope you have a handout. If you want to follow along, that's fine by writing those things down. I know it always helps me. At the end of the day, a prodigal... We need to understand this. They're looking for a way out of the family. Think about this. A prodigal wouldn't be a prodigal if everything that happened inside of the family was happening to their liking, right? I, I mean, if, if the family was structured, was structured in such a way and the family habits and the family attitudes and the family lifestyles were in such a way that was amicable and desirable to the, this son or this daughter, they wouldn't leave home, Right? But a prodigal abandons the home, abandons the family, because they're just looking for a way out. Because at the end of the day, the, the angle for them is, is it's about me. Think about this for a moment. Why does a prodigal want to leave home? They just want something different. This son didn't just want the money, right? This son just wasn't after the money. You know, he does this. The money is a means to an end for him. What's the end? The end is living any way that I want without my family interfering and my, my village interfering with what I'm after. And so he gathers the money, goes and lives a debauchery life, 
in this faraway land outside of anybody keeping him accountable. That's really what he's after. Prodigals today are still really after the same thing. Now, something Jesus' audience would have picked on, uh, picked up on, and maybe you guys have too, is asking the question, so where's the older brother in all this stuff? I mean, you really don't see much mention about the older brother until later, until when he's really angry at the younger son for even coming back home, right? We don't see anything. Why did Jesus not mention anything about the other brother? It could be because the other brother has this this indifferent attitude. In fact, what Jesus' culture would have expected as Jesus was telling the story about what the younger brother was doing, they would have expected the younger brother, and it would have been expected by Mosaic law, for the younger brother to come and defend the honor of the father. He would have somehow been an intermediary. He somehow would have interacted and tried to reconcile the things that were happening. But he didn't. And really, that leaves a question, doesn't it? And here's the question. Did the older brother really love his brother and really love his father? You see what I'm saying? If he really genuinely cared about them, wouldn't you think that he would somehow try to reconcile the things that were happening? We really get to see the older brother's heart a little bit later in the story. All that the older brother cared about is what a jerk his younger brother had been and the fact that his, older, that his father hadn't even given him a goat to slaughter so that he could have fun with his friends. Right? You don't see anything in Jesus' parable talking about, Yay, my younger brother is back. He was so gone and now he's, he's here. It reveals the attitude of the older brother. By the way, the connection that I want you to be picking up on as we're talking through this is the older brother represents the scribes and the Pharisees. And particularly, some people have taken it even a step further to say the younger brother represents the Gentiles and the older brother represents the Jews. Because remember, these are the people who God had given everything to, his chosen and holy people, right? And he had given them his law, he had given them his desires, and they were with him, so as the Father says, all along, and yet they didn't even know him. They didn't have a a heart desire to love him. So I guess the question comes to my mind, so what does this paint a picture of? Here you have a family Here you have a family with this loving, gracious father who bears the shame of both sons. The older son and the younger son. The younger son, sure, it's very clear about his shame and about his disgrace and about his disrespect and about his dishonor. The older son, we have to take a minute to think about the details. We have to understand the Mosaic law. We have to understand the Jewish culture. The older son brought almost just as much shame upon the father by his inaction as the younger son did by his action. It gives them, uh, he gives his sons everything And his sons don't have a relationship with their father or with each other. By the way, you may pick up on the spiritual theme here, that we have a heavenly father who graciously gives us everything, 
who has bore our shame for us and has loved us so extravagantly in that while we were yet sinners, what happened? Christ died for us to redeem us and to reconcile us. He had his beard pulled out. He had his, his uh, hair pulled on. He was beaten beyond recognition. And by his wounds, by his stripes, we are what? According to Isaiah, healed. Do you see the picture that is being painted there by Jesus? It's a beautiful picture, right? It's a picture of us. Back to verse 13. So the younger son, he gets his money. He goes to a distant land. Where is this distant land? We don't know the name of this distant land, but I can tell you where this distant land is not. It is not in Israel. By the way that the construction of the Greek and that everybody inside of Jesus' society and culture would have understood, they would have understood that he was going to Gentile country. And for Jews, that's a no-no. I mean, God had given them this promised land, right? We just sung about Canaan and all the honey of Canaan and all this kind of stuff. That's the promised land. God had given them this specific land, called it theirs, made it theirs, and he's leaving it and abandoning it. Kind of reminds us of a story in the Old Testament with the book of Ruth. He's abandoning it because he's actually rejecting all things God. That's the picture that we should be picking up here. Now remember, if you're not a Jew, you are a Gentile, right? All of us here this morning are Gentiles unless you have Jewish blood in you. Even today, um, Gentiles and Jews are, are separated in the mind of Jews, and what did Gentiles represent in Jesus, especially, really, in Jesus' day? Gentiles represent, re represented disobedient and vulgar living. I mean, these were the people who were worshiping other gods. These were the people who were involved in all kinds of sexual immorality. These were the people who were immoral, unethical. These were the people, especially in the mind of the scribes and the Pharisees, you didn't want to have any dealing with these kinds of people. Because they were not God's people in the minds of the scribes and the Pharisees. Yet this is where this younger brother chooses to go. So if all that isn't bad enough, he makes these things worse. Because he goes and he spends all this money in this horrible poor lifestyle, it's immoral, it's sinful, it's everything that's against God's desires, and then on top of that, what ends up happening? Famine. So we continue to see the spiral down that this young man is going through. He's in bankrupt, verse 14 tells us. Have you ever noticed how often um, choices lead to negative, negative choices, sinful choices lead to negative consequences. You, you know, really, think about this. If we don't experience the negative consequences of our sinful choices, it's only by the, the grace of God that he's holding back those consequences. Yet there, there's times that God removes his hand and allows us to experience those uh, consequences of these sinful choices 
And he does this, by the way, in order to chastise us. He does this in order to, to draw us back to himself. So here you have a guy who's experiencing the negative consequences of his sinful choices, and then on top of that, what would appear from the outside perspective as just a natural disaster hits. The thing is, it's that everybody listening to this parable that Jesus is teaching, the Jews would have understood this to be God's divine judgment upon this younger brother for the way that he was living. So, follow with me. In the mind of Jesus' audience, they're seeing how horrible this younger brother is, and mistake after mistake, and it only gets worse and worse and worse. And probably in the heart and in the mind of the people in Jesus' audience, they're probably asking the question, when is all this going to end? When is God going to vindicate the Father? When is God going to vindicate and 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 discipline this boy? When is he going to, actually probably in the minds of the Pharisees and the scribes, when is he going to strike him dead? When is he going to obliterate him and just end this whole thing? And then, as Jesus says, by the way, famine happened, that's when they're saying, ah, see, this is the beginning of the tragedy for this boy. This is God's divine judgment. This younger son willingly chose to go to a place that he knew was outside of God's will, God's plans. And what ends up happening is Jesus' audience would have been expecting God's divine judgment. And that comes in the form of famine. And, and you know, it very well may have been God's judgment, God's chastisement upon him. I, I give you quite a few verses, I believe, in your handout to where you can look throughout the scriptures and you can see that, that there is a divine judgment that is oftentimes made manifest through famine in particular lands. Famine is often connected with God's judgment. So Jesus' audience would have heard that God was judging this boy. And it would be my guess, and I, I would be fairly confident in my guess, is that the scribes and the Pharisees, especially that group, began to secretly delight when they heard about the famine because they thought, ah, here it comes, suck it to him, God. Give it to him, both barrels. Well, we see, too, that any of his so-called friends had obviously abandoned him. In fact, when it says that he had went out and hired himself, I, I don't understand why the translators use the word hired, because the Greek word means glued. What this, what this guy had done is probably in his um, licentious living, 
in, in his exorbitant living, because he has lots of money, he's coming to a faraway land, coming to town, he has lots of money, throwing big parties, having lots of fun. I'm sure that that kind of attracted kind of this despot crowd. And then what ends up, en- ends up happening is he gains some friends. But have you ever noticed that some of those kinds of friends are not the friends that you want to have? They're the friends who are hanging around for the ride. And once the ride is over, guess what they do? Off they go. But probably what he had done is he had rubbed shoulders with people of means. In fact, we know that the person that he goes out and spends time hanging out with is a person of means. How do you know that? Because he still has pigs. Remember, there's famine in the land. And in order to be able to raise livestock during a time of famine, you have to be able to ride that famine out, and you have to have a little bit of cash flow to be able to sustain that time, right? That's kind of, we were talking recently, oh, that's why the, the prices of meat recently are coming up, is because of the prices of corn last year and all this other kind of stuff. And so, the prices of meat have gone up, and so you've got to be able to ride out these kinds of time. You have to be a big enough operation, and so that's exactly what's happening here. So he, this is a person of means that he glues himself to, and, and the Greek word that has been translated as hired is actually glued. So probably what has happened is he's going and he's just begging this guy, Dude, do you have something for me to do? Do you have something for me to do? Can I do something? Can I do something? And I can just picture it in my mind. Just go out in the field and take care of the pigs. By the way, you couldn't get much more insulting for a Jew. Even today, Jews don't eat bacon or anything pig. It's considered considered non-kosher. When we were in Israel earlier this year, there was a, an older gentleman um, that was on our trip, and there were a couple mornings that he'd lean over to me and say, I'm really craving bacon. I said, you're just not going to find it here. Uh, my friend from Israel came uh, about a month, maybe two months ago, went out to breakfast. I really wanted bacon and sausage for my breakfast but I chose not to because I didn't want to be a stumbling block because it's considered unkosher. It, it's, it's against Mosaic law. So the fact, the fact that this Jewish lad, who had once probably been a great little Jewish lad, is now feeding the pigs in this faraway Gentile country, I mean, he'd hit rock bottom. Rock bottom. I just kind of mention it there in the handout. Pigs are unclean animals. I give you a couple um, addresses in your scriptures. Leviticus 11, you'll read a, read a whole list of unclean animals. Deuteronomy 14.8, you'll read the, specifically about pigs because the type of hoof that they have and number of stomachs, etc. Jews have nothing to do with pigs. And so this guy goes, he glues himself to a citizen of that country, um, the fact that he was a citizen probably meant that he was a Roman citizen. He was probably somebody of stature and means to be able to have the pigs through this famine. Jesus paints this picture of the vilest person. And this vilest person that you could probably imagine violates so many of God's laws that he has, in some 
essence, lost any level of Jewishness that he once had. Any level of Jewishness that he once had. And in the eyes of the Pharisees and scribes, God hated this person. God hated this person in their eyes. But that is not the picture that Jesus tells us as he moves forward in the story. And that's where we're going to pick up next week. I want to give you just a couple things to kind of ruminate on throughout the week. What do your family relationships really look like? Did you know that God wants strong families? Did you know that? God wants your family to be healthy. God wants your family to pursue him. God wants your family to honor him. Even in times of duress, even in times of stress within families, not that any of your families have ever had internal stress. If times like that, God wants us to be about the work of peacemaking. And and, and there's times that we want to show everybody that we're right. And, you know, there's times that it's not about being right. It's about unity and it's about fellowship. Sometimes we have to take on the shame of someone else in our family. Just like the father took on the shame of his son, we have to take on the shame willingly and be okay with that because it's not about us, right? And, And in this world that we live in, in our culture that we live in, numero uno is us. But that's not what the Bible teaches, is it? Numero uno, number one in our lives is who? God, Jesus Christ, our relationship with him. And so that is our pursuit in life. That's our pursuit in our families. And, and sometimes families experience damaged relationships that are seemingly beyond hope and beyond repair. But remember, God is in that business. He is in the business of mending broken hearts. He's in the business of reconciling people to himself and reconciling his people to others. That's our business. We're ambassadors of Christ in those ways. Families that are full of grace, full of love, full of forgiveness, full of going out of their way to lift up someone else in the family more than themselves. That's that's the kind of families that God is, is after. And you kind of look at this family and you say, you know what, that's really not the relationships that we see here. We see kind of everybody except for the father concerned about themselves. Isn't that what you see? Another question I guess came to my mind I think is good for us to, to ask. How often do, do we choose Or do you choose to disobey God? Listen, what I mean here is that you're committing a sin knowingly. You know that God wants you to do something. You know what is right. You know what is God's design for your life. And yet, somehow in the midst of it, you still choose to do that which is sinful. And I I think 
that those are almost like double sins. Not, that's not good theology. But do you get what I mean? It's we knowingly are sinning and we're bringing an affront to God's grace and God's love. Even as redeemed people of God, we can still choose to rebel. And there's many times I'm afraid that God's people do choose to rebel. There's times that we just don't know better. We don't know really what God wants. But then there's times that we really do. I think that that cheapens God's grace. It's grace cost us an awful lot, cost God an awful lot. Cost him the life of Jesus Christ. By the way, now this is something that is maybe tough to stomach and to think through, and I challenge you to think through this. I really thought through this one before I brought it to you this morning. Do you realize that when we willingly sin, like when we know that what we should be doing, just like what we talked about in the second thing here, we're, we're asking judgment to be brought upon us. Understand that our sins bring judgment upon us. While we may be redeemed, if you sin, God will at times, he'll allow you to experience the consequences of your sin. And if he doesn't, if you're not experiencing the consequences of your sin, then you're saying in your mind, see, I sinned and God didn't do anything. It's only by God's grace again that he's withholding divine judgment upon you. That's why it is so important for us to pursue, pursue holiness in our personal lives. That's why it's so vital for us to pursue this theological term that I gave to you several sermon series ago, sanctification. We're to, we're to be holy as what? He is holy. And when we make these sinful choices, we're inviting judgment to come upon us. Don't think that you're saved and now that you can live in any way that you want. I've talked to folks over the years and some of it's just from misunderstandings of the Bible and theology and I think sometimes people create what they want, right? They kind of have their own build-a-God kit to where they build God to be whatever they want him to be. And you can't be a follower of Jesus and just do whatever you want. It's not that way. In, in fact, if you have that attitude, I guess first thing I'd encourage you to ask is, am I really genuinely saved? Secondly is, you're, you don't know what the scriptures teach if you have that attitude. God wants us to obey him. He wants us to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? He wants us to pursue him with every person. There is no greater pursuit in life than your relationship with Jesus Christ. Oftentimes, we don't treat it that way, though, do we, in the practical daily living? We treat it as something we take care of on Sunday, or we'll get there during Easter and Christmas, right? We call these the Christers, people who are at church on Easter and Christmas and think that that is going to somehow, they're going to put their card in and, you know, they're going to punch their card and do their time and listen. If Jesus is really important to you, you got to live like it. Because he knows your heart. He'll see, 
He'll see your heart. You can't hide anything from him. So be sure to pursue holiness. This is just the opposite way of saying pursue holiness. Understand that your sins can bring judgment upon you, even as a believer. That's important for us. And that's what we see with this younger son. 